world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. No disease of aging takes its toll on caregivers quite like dementia. This week on Parents Are Hard to Raise, Diane talks about the powers of music and dance to ease the symptoms of dementia and deliver relief for both caregiver and sufferer. Welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. I get so many emails from uh, children, you know, with having parents with dementia um, and just needing some way to calm their parents down. And uh, I feel so bad. I mean, dementia. Alzheimer's, it's, it's such a tough uh, illness to deal with. And, you know, agitation or trying to focus your parent or trying to reason with them, and that's, that's tough uh, because sometimes there is no reasoning, you know, and trying to deal with them and calm them down, it is difficult. So um, I have a, a tip for you. You know, I don't know if you've tried this, but research suggests listening to or singing music can have emotional and behavioral benefits for people with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. And those musical memories are often preserved in Alzheimer's patients because the key brain areas that are linked to music memory are relatively undamaged by the disease. So if you try to think of, you know, what music did mom or dad like? I know for me, for my dad, it would be Frank Sinatra <laughs> because that's all he listens to. <laughs> or, you know, some type of music that may stir up a happy time in their life. So if you're trying in the morning to feed them or even dinner time or trying to bathe them or dress them, you might want to play a soothing song that they like. Um, but you have to remember, close the door, get rid of any other noise, any distraction. You don't want somebody in the other room listening to the TV. Um, you don't want you don't want the volume too high. You, you don't want any kind of other distraction. And you don't want them listening to the radio because commercials can be confusing. So if you can also maybe not when they're eating or, you know, not when you're trying to dress them or bathe them, but maybe if, you know, you just want them to sit and maybe after they've had lunch and you just want them to sit um, and listen to music, maybe you can put some headphones on them help them to clap or tap their feet or even, you know, stand up and dance with them. Try to dance with them. Try to get them to sing along because the singing may conjure up some memories for them.
<clears throat> if they're enjoying the music, keep doing it. You know, if they're enjoying the, the selections you've made. If they're not, you know, choose another song. But you kind of know what they like to listen to. Hopefully that helps calm them down. Even, you know, before bedtime, you know, even while they're in bed and, you know, they might be agitated or moving around, you might put the earphones on them and try that. <clears throat> now, music therapy also can help Parkinson's patients. You know, you've we've all seen, I think it was on Facebook, that physical therapist walking with the Parkinson's patient and using... Uh, music, using the beat of the music to retrain him to walk. So, you know, Parkinson's, it affects the communication between the nerve cells in the brain and the muscles in our body. So you have those, uh, that movement dysfunction. And there's some motor symptoms and non-motor symptoms. <clears throat> when we think about Parkinson's, we think about that shaking and we you know, imagine the person walking and those tremors, those symptoms, those slow movements, those that rigidity, you know, that unsteady movements. And those are, you know, probably symptoms that we hear more often than other ones. But we don't think about some of the other symptoms that are affected by not being able to control movements and by the muscles in our body, like swallowing. The voice and speech problems, respiratory. So, you know, swallowing problems in Parkinson's, it can cause the muscles in, in the face or the jaw to weaken. So that affects chewing and swallowing. It can affect the muscles of the tongue. The tongue can even have tremors. And the tongue's important in swallowing because that's what manipulates your food so you're ready to swallow. Voice and speech problems if you notice sometimes a, uh, a patient with Parkinson's, you can't understand what they're saying. And they have, because they have problems controlling the muscles that are responsible for making sound. They have voice abnormalities, their pitch, their volume. Sometimes they sound monotone. They have problems with pronouncing consonants because those require use of the tongue. Sometimes you can't understand what they're saying. They they have trouble making clear and distinct sounds. Respiratory problems, their chest wall is restricting. And when they have swallowing problems, sometimes thin liquids like water can enter the lungs and the patient doesn't even know it. And they ha don't have that respiratory or muscle strength to cough or remove anything foreign from the lungs and they develop pneumonia. Current medications and treatments, they don't address all the problems of Parkinson's, like the voice and swallowing problems. So a new study has shown that singing is helping patients with Parkinson's build strength. How's that doing that? The singing is improving the muscles used for swallowing and respiratory control, because singing is using the same muscles associated with swallowing and respiratory so they have music therapy classes where they're not, they don't care what the sound is. They're not working on that. They're working on proper breath support, on posture, and use of muscles involved with vocal cords. So if you think about it, singing is really like a more sustained form of speech. So there's greater emphasis on rhythm, on pitch, on tone, variation. And singing requires greater respiratory control, greater voice control, and increased muscle strength.
Also with Parkinson's, another uh, other symptoms, people usually, uh, they form depression and they tend to isolate themselves because, you know, because of the tremors, because of imbalance, not being able to walk right. So when you think about it, singing is known to make a healthy person feel better. So another benefit to this music therapy and singing for Parkinson's patients, they can, they feel like maybe they can help manage some of their symptoms. They're with other people and they're not isolated. So they're finding that the singing therapy classes, the patients are feeling less stressed and less depressed. I, I always think, you know, when you look at uh, a patient, you have to look at the whole person along with the symptoms of the disease and, and look at treatments that way. Of course, medication is necessary, it's beneficial. But in this case, in the case of Parkinson's, the medication isn't helping with the patient engaging in life and being socially active. And that's what you, what you want. You want to look at the whole the whole person. How about dancing? Can dancing help the older brain? I know, I did singing, now we're going to do dancing. So studies have suggested that participating in, long t in a long-term dance program, in this, this was part of the study, is better than doing repetitive exercises in producing neuroplasticity in the brains of healthy senior volunteers. Now, those seniors were anywhere from age 63 to 80 years of age. I don't know if seniors 63. I don't know about that. But anyway, neuroplasticity, what is that? That's the brain's ability to change throughout life at any age, to rewire itself, to adapt to its environment. So we want to keep the brain on the ball. So what they did was they compared these participants in the dance training program for 18 months. So these volunteers would go two times a week for 90 minutes. And the classes involved constant changes in the choreography of the dances. So they had to memorize dance moves and they had to memorize them accurately. They also had to do different things. They had to do skips, hops, leg stances. So they wanted to use steps to challenge balance, like steps used in the cha-cha or the mambo. They also uh, did different patterns. They wanted to move their arms away from their body. They changed the routines every second week. And these volunteers, they had to recall routines under time pressure and without any kind of cues. So now they compared them to fitness training. Same thing, volunteers did this for 18 months, twice a week, for 90 minutes. And they had it to repetitive sequences of endurance, flexibility, and strength training. And for the first six months, they did cycling. For the second six months, they did Nordic walking. And what the study showed was that dancing counteracted age-related decline in physical and mental abilities. And it also showed signs of improvement in balance. Why? Well, dancing involves a combination of aerobic fitness. You're getting sensory information from different places from different cha channels in your body, visual, auditory, vestibular, you know, your body balance and movement, and motor control of the whole body. Wow, so that's pretty good. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. 
Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. I'm singing in the rain. Just singing in the rain. You're listening to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. So everybody talks about healthcare today. The healthcare environment in the U.S. is brutal. No matter where I go, I hear people, if I'm in a restaurant or, um, I don't know, I'm in a store, I always hear somebody talking about something, about a doctor, the hospital, a bill, the pharmacy, anything. Everybody's under this tremendous stress. So what are the, it's not just us. I mean, we as consumers are saying, oh my gosh, I have these high, you know, our insurance costs, high deductibles. You don't want to go into a hospital. You don't want to catch anything. I mean, there's so many, so many stories and so many things to talk about. So but what about physicians, for instance? What are the challenges facing doctors today in 2018? Well, one of the things physicians say is they're trying to avoid burnout. They're trying to remain dedicated to medicine, that they have all these time demands brought on by electronic health records. So electronic health records, that was one of um, these inventions that was supposed to improve the coordination of care and provide quality of care. So I think 
that had an unintended negative consequence. <laughs> um, what is that, an unintended consequence in life? You know, it's an outcome that isn't anticipated or intended by some action. So it was supposed to, you know, be better for, for us. But what it did, what are the negative consequences? I think it reduced efficiency. It's got this huge clerical burden. And I think it increase the risk of burnout for physicians. There's older physicians retiring and leaving because they don't want to be dealing with computers and be t attached to a computer. And they just don't want to learn, learn that or do it. And even younger doctors, it's just, they're stressed out because they say that all they do, they're, they're in, you know, they have a patient there and they, they don't even look at the patient. They're in there typing and having to read and get through all this. And so there's a fragment in care. And, you know, they, they say, I'm a good physician, but I'm stuck in the middle. I'm stuck between the patient and paperwork. I'm stuck between the patient and these electronic health records. I'm tied to this computer. And I'm stuck between the patient and payers, the insurance companies. So I just want to be a good physician and provide good care, but my time is divided. So that's another concern. Time demands of these electronic health records. They can't spend time with you. I know if I go to a doctor and they're just, I'm looking at them and they're, they're not even looking at me. They're on the computer. I just want to say, would you shut that thing? Get away from it. Look at me. Talk to me because that's what we want. But they're, they're trying to find your records, go through everything, read everything, and enter what they have to. It's a nightmare. They said, physicians say they spend 20% of their day on prior authorizations, electronic health records, entering stuff, and non-clinical paperwork. Also, a big concern and challenge of physicians is third-party payer interference in the patient's care. That's a big one. So it's insurance companies telling physicians how to practice medicine and deciding that they need prior authorizations for everything. They're saying just standard treatments that are not anywhere out of the ordinary. They need prior authorizations. If I can just prescribe what I want and give it to the patient, we'd be fine. But I have to go through an insurance company, someone on the other end saying, nope, you can't do that. The person isn't even a physician. Or yes, you have to try this. So that's another one. They have to manage quality measures, incentives, and disincentives, or Medicare and Medicaid. There's this whole maze that affects payments. They have to worry about costs, for instance, medication costs, as a barrier for the patient sticking to what they say or complying. You know, the cost of prescription drugs, we have this high, high deductibles, high co-payments. So people aren't getting the medications that they need. They're not, they're not, you know, our parents aren't filling them or refilling them. They have, physicians have to worry about rapidly changing reimbursements. A big one that you hear about and you read about that there's a growing patient disrespect towards physicians. Physicians d don't have the same relationship. Doctor-patient relationship is not what it used to be. You know, and I'm not saying it has to be like our parents. Our parents look at doctors like priests, you know, that they have to, a doctor is, 
God almost, you know, or doctor is a priest. You have to listen to everything the doctor says. And, and the doctor said I have to do, you know, and I'm not saying that, but patients today, well, they doubt their doctor's wisdom. They go online, they go on the internet, they check, they don't, you know, they check everything out on the internet or they go on social media. I have a friend who had to have, um, she had, um, heart arrhythmias. And so, her the cardiology group that she went to didn't have a cardiologist that specialized in it so they sent her to another one and i said to her well do you know anything about the doctor you know do you and this is what she texts me, the doctor's office address. Take a look at the building he's in. <laughs> Take a look at his building. I've heard he has marble <laughs> on the floor and statues. I'm like, well, what does that have to do with his qualifications? <laughs> so I don't know. Was she thinking? I'm saying, well, what are you thinking? And then I and then she I said, well, did you meet him? Well, yes, but I have a lot of questions. I'm like, but what do you mean you have a lot of questions? Didn't you ask them when you went there? Well, no, he just told me this is what I'm going to do and he seemed like he knew what he was doing so I figured he's got to be okay I'm like this is your heart you have to listen you have to make a list of all the questions you have and you have to sit there and talk to him she goes well he's got to be good he's very busy I said no he's touching your heart so you have to make sure you feel comfortable with him you have to ask him every question and you have to understand what he's going to do and if he cannot take the time then you may not want to go to him and it doesn't matter what kind of marble he has on his floors but that's what you know they're looking at and you know sometimes could that be all the stars he has on social media it could just be for what his office looks like I mean it's kind of crazy also what other problems physicians having a hard time trying to remain independent you hear all about you know, you go to a doctor and the doctor, he sold his practice to the hospital or he sold his practice and became, you know, gobbled up into a big group because they can't, the, their costs have increased and they can't keep up with the costs. Their reimbursements have declined. And so this is what they do. Also, in this insurance marketplace, they have to understand and know all about ever-changing insurance you know, is this covered? Who's covered and what's covered? So I don't know. What do you think? I guess, you know, you have to give your doctor or a doctor you may go to see. You kind of have to, you have to decide, do I give them a break or what do I think or what do I feel? Because I guess they have stress as well. Also, I'm reading and talking about pharmacists. Pharmacists are undergoing a tremendous amount of stress. I was saying to my husband, too, I go to um, a local, a small pharmacy. I don't like to go to chain pharmacies, probably because you've heard my story. I worked for my cousin Herb, you know, and he had a pharmacy and it was very um, relationship oriented and he knew every, you know, every patient. I mean, he he just that was his way. And I just always felt like, you know, a chain. I, I They don't know who you are. You're just a number. So pharmacists now are dealing with stress. Why? Well, they have long hours, less staff support, more reimbursement challenges. 
And if they're in a chain pharmacy, they have to worry about all the other services that they have to deal with. Their pharmacists are saying that they have their high workload makes them depressed. They have no time. And they're saying it's not that working long shifts is the problem. It's that in that shift, they may not get a break. They said that, you know, if if they try to take a 10-minute break, they come back and there's like they're backlogged with 40 prescriptions or they have a line of people yelling, you know, because they're waiting in line. So they said they could be have nothing to do for an hour and then suddenly be nonstop for the next four hours. So there's no workflow management. And I've noticed that even in my small, in the small uh, pharmacy that I go to, you know, privately owned pharmacy, I could see like a tremendous difference from years ago. That everybody's under such stress. The pharmacists are under stress, such stress. And I guess it could be because, you know, people are coming there, they want to pick up a prescription and the pharmacist is saying, well, we didn't get prior authorization. And people are going, what do you mean? Well, your doctor didn't fill out the form. Your doctor didn't get back. I don't know. You know, the, the, they try again and it's getting rejected. Your insurance company rejected it. Or, you know, you're saying, what do you mean my copay is $120, you know, for 30 pills? So I guess, you know, they're under stress as well. What happens, though, you know, when physicians, when pharmacists, they suffer burnout or they're tired or they're stressed, they can make a medication error, and that's happened. You know, they can, and what happens is a lot of times they don't even know they've made the medication error until the person comes to uh, renew the prescription. Or, God forbid, they've made a medication error and given the person the wrong prescription, and the person can wind up in the hospital, the person can die. So, I, you know, we're all under this healthcare stress, Pharmacists, doctors, the average Joe, you and me, we're all under it. Mom and dad, you as a caregiver. So we all have to kind of, I try to take a break and, and a breath and say, okay, you know, the person on the other end, the person I'm dealing with, they're under stress too. They have problems too. So we all got to kind of try to work it out and remember we're not the only ones that are under stress. Even though that's kind of hard to do because you never think about, you know, the doctor, the nurse, the physician, the pharmacist, everybody being under stress. But that's how it is today. So that's what we got to deal with, unfortunately. Hey, so when you go to the doctor or you take mom and dad to the doctor and the doctor isn't even looking at you and is on the computer, you know, is on his computer, typing away. (laughs) Or when you go to the pharmacy and there's a long line, um, this is what you're going to do. Use this survival tip. Fake a smile. Forcing yourself even to fake a grin can make you feel better because your face is wired to your brain. And your face is forcing your brain to think it's happy. So you'll feel better. Oh, there you go. I hope this week's show was helpful to you, or if you know someone who would be helped by it, please tell them about it. Please like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, because that'll help other people find the show. Please tell people they can subscribe to the show using iTunes, 
You can find links to the topics we just talked about in the show notes for today's episode. Episode 45 at parentsarehardtoraise.org. Please keep those emails coming in. I'm here to help you. If there's something you're struggling with, I'll try to include it in a future show. Email me at diane at parentsarehardtoraise.org. You can reach me through my website, dianeberardi.com. You can follow me on Facebook at Parents Are Hard to Raise Podcast, and I tweet at Jersey Elder Care. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a CounterThink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, LLC, New York, New York, under license of Broadcast Music, Incorporated. Thank you so much for listening. See you again next week. And singing in the rain